Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. This morning we're going to consider verses 13 to 15. Matthew 19, verses 13 to 15. One of the most delightful things I ever get to do as a pastor is to baptize a child. I did not grow up believing in baptizing children. God eventually dragged me kicking and screaming into the realization that baptizing a baby was something he wanted done, whether I did or not. So I'm sensitive to the fact that this morning there are sincere believers, maybe some here, who find what we did this morning strange, if not terribly improper. In my last church back in New Jersey, a dear lady who actually was our regular pianist was so disturbed with the prospect of us baptizing a child that she could not come to church that week. I understand that. At the same time, I know that many other people For many other people, baptizing children is a comfortable old tradition. But they would be hard-pressed to give any defense of why on earth you do that. So this morning, rather than just baptizing little Lucy and moving on, I want us to talk about it. To talk about God's relationship to our children. In our study of Matthew, we come to this next week. We haven't yet dealt with verses 10, 11, and 12. I'm just going to jump ahead and talk about this this week, and next week we'll come back to those verses we skipped. Now, this is a familiar passage. It's found in Matthew. It's found in Mark. It's found in Luke. And we've studied the passage from Mark before, not so many years ago. But today we'll look at what Matthew has to say. Let me read the text. Verse 13. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went, he went on from there. This passage teaches us two powerful truths. The first one has three parts. So kids, don't get confused at that. First one is this, Jesus includes our children in his kingdom. Jesus includes our children in his kingdom. I still remember 50 years ago when Jane and I started to have children, what a great joy and what a great shock. For as you know, there are lots of places where kids are just not welcome. Usually we pick up on those subtle clues of that, that you ought not bring the kids. Sometimes people are just brutally blunt. My favorite blunt statement is the sign in some establishments that says, unattended children will be given an espresso and a free puppy. (laughs) A gentle reminder that we're not so kid friendly here. Such was the attitude of some in Matthew 19. There was an excitement in the air. 
Jesus, the great healer and teacher, was in the area. And as we see back in the very first, uh, the second verse of this chapter, large crowds of people had begun to follow him. And then someone had the audacity to bring their kids. And not only that, but to interrupt Jesus, wanted him to bless their children. I'm sure you can imagine this scene. Parents trying to insert their children into an obviously adult-only situation. Well, fortunately, the disciples were there. The apostles were there. They were right on top of this. They rebuked those parents, tell them to get these children out of there. Except um, Jesus rebuked them for saying that and said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For Jesus includes our children in his kingdom. As we look more carefully at what happened here, let me make three observations about this first point. Not three points, it's three about the first point. The first is this. These were babies. These were babies. The New Testament was written in Greek, not English. And there are several different Greek words that you could use for small children. So it's helpful to know the difference between those words and to consider which words were used here. The first of those words is the Greek word pice. It's a general word for children. It, it seems to mean children between about seven and about 14. Pice. None of the gospel writers use that word to describe this situation. The second word is paideia. It's a diminutive form of, of pice, meaning a little child, a very young child, or even an infant child. In other words, one clearly younger than about seven. This is a word that Mark and Matthew both use. Paideia, a very young child or infant. But then there's a third word, brefe. This is a word meaning baby, infant, newborn, even unborn child. And interestingly, that's the word Luke uses in his account of this same incident. So do you see the significance of this? Matthew and Mark used a word that can mean either little children or infants. But Luke leaves no question. He uses a word that can only mean infant. In other words, babies were being brought to Jesus. Mark actually kind of indicates the same thing in his account when he tells us that Jesus took the children in his arms. Over the years, I picked up a lot of kids. I love the kids, and I hope that they know, know it and love me back. But you know, I never pick up a 15-year-old. In fact, I don't pick up seven-year-olds. You pick up little babies, little ones. In other words, the Bible makes clear that Jesus includes even our babies in his kingdom. Second observation about this first point. Jesus did something significant to these children. He did something significant. When you first read this, we may wonder what really happened. What did Jesus actually do to, this, to these children? The NIV translation, which I read, says somewhat casually, he put his hands on them. 
We use that when we're kind of abusing somebody. We put our hands on them. He didn't do that. The King James Version, the older translation, says very literally, he laid hands on them. The question is, how significant of an act was that? Well, in the New Testament, 40 times laying hands on someone is mentioned. It's mentioned in conjunction with healing, with baptisms, with the giving of the Holy Spirit, and with ordination to ministry. It would be very strange, would it not, if the word used to describe all those significant events in the faith here meant nothing more than a pat on the head. Now, the Dictionary of New Testament Theology, an unbiased Greek lexicon, which is some kind of Greek authority when we're talking about the scriptures, explains it this way. It says, this gesture of blessing symbolizes the gracious offer of a share in the kingdom of God made to those who are not of age. John Calvin explained it even more pointedly. He writes, the laying on of hands was certainly no frivolous or empty symbol. Nor did Christ pour forth his prayers for these children into the thin air. But he could not solemnly present these children to God without giving them purity. And what was his prayer for them but that they might be received among the children of God? From this it follows that they were regenerated by the Spirit in the hope of their salvation. And finally, that he embraced them that Jesus embraced them was a testimony that he reckoned these children to be part of his flock. Make no mistake, Jesus did something significant to these children. This passage never mentions baptism, I admit. But it's difficult not to see some justification here for baptizing our infant children. For clearly God has not abandoned his ancient promises of considering our children as members of his covenant. And so Jesus included children in his kingdom. Then there's a third observation. The first one was these were babies. The second that Jesus did something significant. And the third one is hindering these children makes Jesus angry. Hindering these children makes Jesus angry. <coughs> There's an expression used in reference to Jesus, which Mark includes in his account, and is used nowhere else in the Bible. And it's the word when it says Jesus was indignant. Indignant. The apostles re rebuked parents for bringing the children, and Jesus rebuked the apostles. He was indignant. He commanded them to stop hindering these children. Oh, these children were not trying to come on their own. They were being brought. They were not bold enough to come of their own free will. They were brought by their parents. But Jesus said, stop holding them away from me. And until they allowed the children to come, he was indignant. I don't know about you. I've learned to not have Jesus indignant with me if there's some way to evade that. 
If that's the case, then this text indicate, indicates we'd better not hinder our children from coming to Christ. You see, whether we include children in God's kingdom is not just a matter of personal preference. Christ commands that our children be included, and he is indignant if they are not. Now, as I ruminate on this, there are many ways we might hinder our children from coming. Let me mention a few that I've gathered over the years. We could just refuse to include them. Just say God's covenant has nothing to do with the babies, acting as if they're outsiders until they grow up and make their own decision. That's a very American kind of idea, rugged individualism and all that. It just makes Jesus indignant when we do that. Or we could bring them, but, but fail to train them, fail to disciple them into holiness. But if we do, we hinder them by allowing them to go on their own sinful way. And our God, who is a consuming fire, is indignant. Or we can also hinder them by being overzealous in our training. We can train them with such harshness that we virtually guarantee that they will bolt at the first opportunity, running away from their faith and shaking the dust off their feet as they go. But that's not how our Heavenly Father treats us. And Christ is indignant when we treat his children that way. Or another way, we can educate them year after year, but never get around to mentioning that truth belongs to God. Even math and science, it belongs to God. But when we do that, we should not be surprised when they grow up and consider God irrelevant to the real world and they, that they live in. We hindered them by failing to teach them this. And Christ is indignant. Or we can hinder them by lovingly and po being popular and filling their lives with all kinds of things, sports and entertainment and social life so that there's no time for the Lord. But when we do, we're hindering them. And Christ is indignant. Worst of all, the very worst, we can say all the right things and go through all the motions of the faith, but at home, where only they see how we really are, live in such a way that our children have to deal with our hypocrisy. And thus we hinder them. We drive them away by our unchanged lives that don't match our Christian words. And Christ Jesus is indignant. This morning, with all my heart, I call you to bring your children to Jesus. I firmly believe that that begins with baptism as an infant. But it certainly does not end there. It means much more. It has to do with all of life. It has to do with all of our expect expectations and our goals and our plans and our example and our teaching and our discipline and our compassion. Do not hinder your children from coming to the Savior for the kingdom is theirs too. I didn't say that. Jesus said it. Then there's a second, very different point that I want us to consider. In both Mark's account and Luke's account, Jesus goes on in this very passage, it's almost verbatim, 
to say, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So we know from those parallel passages that Jesus said that in this occasion. Matthew doesn't include that. So we ask, why not? I think maybe the answer is that if I turn back one page in my Bible where Jesus is talking about who's the greatest and he sets a little child in their midst, there Jesus says virtually the same thing. He says, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Since Matthew just recorded those words, he, I guess, chose to leave them out here. If you'll indulge me, I would like to reiterate that point, which we know for certain was part of what Jesus said here, though we all spoke about it only a few weeks ago. But it makes a second important point. You may remember it. Jesus only accepts helpless children. Jesus includes our children in his kingdom. Jesus only accepts helpless children. After many years in the military, I'm always amused by armed forces recruiting ads. They say things, I was Air Force, they say things like, look at the Air Force, it's a great way of life. Look at those planes. Picture yourself zooming through the air, aim high, you can do this. Wanna bet? There are a few other requirements they never mention. Things like you have to have a college degree, you must pass endless batteries of tests, you must have perfect vision, 2020, not colorblind, good depth perception, peripheral vision, etc. You can never have been knocked unconscious, not even in a football game. You must be at least five feet, six inches tall and not a bit over six foot three inches tall and not one pound overweight. You, there are a few more requirements than just aiming high. So what about God's kingdom? Does he really welcome people like us? Or behind the attractive offer of new life, does he really have quite an unattainable list of requirements? Well, here Jesus addresses that question of who may enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the most profound human question, by the way. It's the quest in one form or another of every religion in the world. How will you be accepted by God or the gods or however they frame it? Now concerning this question, the Bible has a lot to say. It talks about God's holiness, his wrath against sin. It talks about his law, which defines the holiness he requires and condemns every effort that falls short. It talks about his love and how he gave his only son. It talks about atonement, pictured in the Old Testament by the sacrifice of dumb beasts, but then in full view by the self-sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The Bible also talks about the response which God requires. Repentance from useless attempts to save ourselves, trusting, uh, uh, turning away from our sinfulness and trusting the Lord Jesus, uh, who is our only Savior. But in working out all the details of, uh, uh, about life in Christ's kingdom, it's possible for us to lose sight of the forest for the trees. So Jesus, ignoring our volumes of theology by which we can discuss these things, rightfully so, he goes right to the heart of the matter when he says this, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child 
will never enter it. Do you see the point? Not only does Jesus include little children in his kingdom, there's a sense in which he only includes little children, or at least those who come as little children. So what does it mean to be childlike? What's he saying here? Well, it certainly does not mean that we physically be a child again. Nicodemus got hung up on that. Jesus said, you must be born again. He says, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time to be born? Jesus never meant that we could physically be children again. Neither was Jesus suggesting that we might be children mentally. Some Christians have thought like that, seeming to glorify ignorance as a, as a sign of godliness, thinking faith is anti-intellectualism. But the God who made our minds does not ask us to throw away our brains to enter his kingdom. In fact, he demands that we love him with our whole mind, as well as our heart and soul and body. Then Jesus certainly did not mean for us to be childish in the sense of foolish irresponsibility. God never glorifies immaturity. And, and as for the foolishness which often comes with immaturity, we call that kind of immature and Silly and a dumb idea. God just calls such folly sin. He does not glorify foolishness. Nor does Jesus, nor is Jesus calling us to somehow regain childish innocence. Because the scriptures clearly teach that children are not innocent from the beginning. That we're born in sin and guilt and we need a savior. So since none of these describe what Jesus meant... By becoming a child, not physically, not mentally, not in immaturity, not by regaining lost innocence. Some have suggested, well, then he must have just been talking about simple faith. That we believe and trust wholeheartedly like a little child does. And there's certainly some truth to that. For, for faith is the means by which we come to God. And children often show wonderfully clear examples of trusting. But may I suggest that the truth of this text is even more profound than that. The point is that there is no ability or quality characteristic of children that makes them acceptable to God. God receives children because of their characteristic total inability the late New Testament scholar William Lane said it well. This is what he wrote. The ground of Jesus' surprising statement is not to be found in any subjective quality possessed by children, but rather in their objective humbleness and in the startling character of the grace of God who wills to give, to the, to give the kingdom to those who have no claim on it. The kingdom may be entered only by one who knows he is helpless and small without claim and without merit. The unchildlike piety of achievement must be abandoned. This morning, if you are convinced that you are acceptable enough before God, because of all that you've done and all that you are and all that you know, 
I must tell you, you have no hope of entering the kingdom. Sorry. He only accepts helpless children. But as ominous as this sounds at first, it's a joyous truth. For how could I, a mere mortal, ever convince the eternal God to accept me? How could I, a sinful man, ever convince the one who's holy, 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 to not turn me away? How could I ever be smart enough or devout enough or diligent enough to convince him to lay aside his standard of holiness and ignore my stubborn rebellion and my selfish and greedy ways. And if ever I did convince him to accept me, how could I sustain his favor? Could I guarantee that I would never again fail him? That my heart would never again turn cold? That my motives or actions would never again be impure? If it depends on me, I have no hope, and neither do you. But the good news is this. In his mercy, Christ Jesus receives the helpless. So if God in his mercy has brought you painfully to the end of yourself, to be as helpless and unable to save yourself as a little baby. Then this morning I call you to come in faith to Jesus, empty-handed, without any claim, helpless and hopeless. But with that call, I remind you of Jesus' promise. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For Jesus says, the kingdom belongs to such as these. Wise Lake Chapel is a church full of children. God's blessed us with many little ones. And we rejoice in that, for we understand that God includes our children in his covenant and in his kingdom. But Wise Lake Chapel is a church full of children in more ways than one. In a most profound sense, we are a whole church full of helpless babies. Really. I know you. You know me. And the Lord knows all of us. Helpless babies. But that's okay. For Christ only accepts such children who are as unable to save ourselves as little baby Lucy that we baptized this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, if we were designing the way of salvation, we would certainly have glorious and nearly impossible tasks, things you must know, and things you must do, and things you must endure. We do it all the time, Lord, when we 
try people to see if they meet the qualifications for some important thing. And so, Lord, it just shocks us to the core to think that you might open your kingdom to helpless little babies who can't even get to first base in earning our way. But, Lord, right after the shock, the joy fills our hearts that you do not turn us away that you give us a new life. You grow us in the faith. You conform us to the perfection of your son, Jesus. Oh, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to be aware when we're trusting something else that we're doing and to abandon that and cast ourselves upon your mercy, knowing that you do not turn us away. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.